You are listening to the official podcast of Salem Tabernacle in Beacon, New York, a community of people devoted to experiencing life as God meant it to be. Ask that we open our ears and our hearts. Our first reading is out of 1 Samuel uh, 16, verses 1 through 13. The Lord said to Samuel, How long will you grieve over Saul, since I have rejected him from being king over Israel? Fill your horn with oil and go. I will send you to Jesse the Bethlehemite, for I have provided for myself a king among his sons. And Samuel said, How can I go? If Saul hears it, he will kill me. And the Lord said, Take a heifer with you and say, I have come to sacrifice to the Lord and invite Jesse to the sacrifice and I will show you what you shall do. And you shall anoint for me him who I will declare to you. Samuel did what the Lord commanded and came to Bethlehem. The elders of the city came to meet him, trembling, and said, Do you come peaceably? And he said, Peaceably, I have come to sacrifice to the Lord. Consecrate yourselves and come to me to the sacri- come with me to the sacrifice. And he consecrated Jesse and his sons and invited him to the sacrifice. When they came, he looked on Eliab and thought, Surely the Lord's anointed is before him. But the Lord said to Samuel, Do not look on his appearance or on the height of his stature, because I have rejected him. For the Lord sees not as man sees. Man sees on the outward appearance, but the Lord looks on the heart. Then Jesse called Abinadab and made him pass before Samuel. And he said, Neither has the Lord chosen this one. Then Jesse made Shammah pass by, and he said, Neither has the Lord chosen this one. And Jesse made seven of his sons pass before Samuel. And Samuel said to Jesse, The Lord has not chosen these. Then Samuel said to Jesse, Are all of your sons here? And he said, There remains yet the youngest, but behold, he is keeping the sheep. And Samuel said to Jesse, Send and get him, for we will not sit down until he comes here. And he sent and brought him in. Now he was ruddy and had beautiful eyes and was handsome. And the Lord said, Arise, anoint him, for this is he. Then Samuel took the horn of oil and anointed him in the midst of his brothers. And the Spirit of the Lord rushed upon David from that day forward. And Samuel rose up and went to Ramah. Now Ephesians 5, 8 through 11. For at one time you were darkness, but now you are light in the Lord. Walk as children of light, for the fruit of light is found in all that is good and right and true. And try to discern what is pleasing to the Lord. Take no part in the unfruitful works of darkness, but instead expose them. Reading of the Word. A reading from the Gospel of John, chapter 9, Verses 1 through 41. As he passed by, he saw a man blind from birth, and his disciples asked him, Rabbi, who sinned, this man or his parents, that he was born blind? Jesus answered, It was not this man sinned or his parents, but that the works of God might be displayed in him. We must work the works of him who sent me while it is day, night is coming, when no one can work. As long as I am in the world, I am the light of the world. 
Having said these things, he spit on the ground and made mud with the saliva. Then he anointed the man's eyes with the mud and said to him, go, wash in the pool of Siloam, which means scent. So he went and washed and came back seeing. The neighbors and those who had seen him before as a beggar were saying, is this not the man who used to sit and beg? Some said, it is he. Others said, no, but he is like him. He kept saying, I am the man. So they said to him, then how were your eyes opened? He answered, the man called Jesus made mud and anointed my eyes and said to me, go to Siloam and wash. So I went and washed and received my sight. They said to him, where is he? He said, I do not know. They brought to the Pharisees the man who had formerly been blind. Now it was a Sabbath day when Jesus made the mud and opened his eyes. So the Pharisees again asked him how he had received his sight. And he said to them, he put mud on my eyes and I washed and I see. Some of the Pharisees said, this man is not from God for he does not keep the Sabbath. But others said, how can a man who is a sinner do such things? And there was a division among them. So they said again to the blind man, what do you say about him since he has opened your eyes? He said, he is a prophet. The Jews did not believe that he had been blind and had received his sight until they called the parents of the man who had received his sight and asked them, is this your son, who you say was born blind? How then does he now see? <clears throat> His parents answered, We know that this is our son, and that he, had, he was born blind. But how he now sees, we do not know, nor do we know who opened his eyes. Ask him, he is of age, he will speak for himself. His parents said these things because they, were feared, they feared the Jews. For the Jews had already agreed that if anyone should confess Jesus to be Christ, he was to be put out of the synagogue. Therefore his parents said, he is of age, ask him. For the second time they called the man who had been blind and said to him, give glory to God. We know that this man is a sinner. He answered, whether he is a sinner, I do not know. One thing I do know, that though I was blind, now I see. They said to him, what did he do to you? How did he open your eyes? He answered them, I have told you already and you would not listen. Why do you want to hear it again? Do you also want to become his disciples? And they reviled him saying, you are his disciple, but we are disciples of Moses. We know that God has spoken to Moses, but for this man, we do not know where he comes from. The man answered, why, this is an amazing thing. You do not know where he comes from, and yet he opened my eyes. We know that God does not listen to sinners, but if anyone is a worshiper of God and does his will, God listens to him. Never since the world began, has it been heard that anyone opened the eyes of a man born blind? If this man were not from God, he could do nothing. They answered him, you were born in utter sin, 
and would you teach us? And they cast him out. Jesus heard that they had cast him out, and having found him, he said, Do you believe in the Son of Man? He answered, And who is this, and who is he, sir, that I may believe in him? Jesus said to him, You have seen him, and it is he who is speaking to you. He said, Lord, I believe, and he worshipped him. Jesus said, For judgment I came into this world, that those who do not see may see, and those who see may become blind. Some of the Pharisees near him heard these things and said to him, Are we also blind? Jesus said to them, If you were blind, you would have no guilt. But now that you say, We see, your guilt remains. The word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Wonderful job. You two, you two class up the Bible. Like, that's how classy you are. Like, in heaven, they're like, that? That was pretty classy reading. That was a pretty classy reading. If we go back to just before Lent, we meet Jesus as he's being transfigured on the Mount of Transfiguration, and Peter is trying to make tabernacles so that he could keep the presence of Jesus and Moses and Elijah present, and God does not allow him to make tabernacles because Peter knows that when you make a tabernacle, the glory of God fills the tabernacle. And so he was trying to build a structure that could keep this moment. And God did not let Peter, James, and John build those tabernacles, but it also says that a cloud came down and overshadowed Peter, James, and John. What God is saying is, you guys don't need to build what you yourselves actually are. Your tabernacles of my presence. And in you, all the presence of heaven can come upon you in the same way that you're seeing it happen now. And then we enter into, from there, a se the season of Lent, where we fast, where we pray, where we pay attention to our sin in a unique way, not for guilt or condemnation, but to cleanse the temple, to remind ourselves that we spend most of our time trying to build what we already are. We spend most of our time trying to remake who we already are when we get unsettled, when we don't feel content, when the world around us makes us feel like we need to be something different or we can't find our purpose or we don't know our calling. We try to erect for ourselves those things. And God is always destroying our building funds. He's always destroying our building project because he doesn't want us to build what we already are. What he made as fearfully and wonderfully made, he doesn't need us to remake. Who you are today as you're sitting here listening to this is enough for the glory and presence of God to fill, overshadow, and flow through you to those around you. You don't need to build anything to make it last. You don't need to try to keep good moments good and avoid bad moments. You are the kind of being that God's glory will flow out of in the best moments and the worst moments. You might be a well-watered garden today and you might be a desert tomorrow, but take heart, streams do flow in the desert. You don't need to reinvent yourself. You don't need to be someone you're not. If, if your calling in life seems to be stalled, seems to be non-existent, if you don't know what the word purpose or calling even means, there's a sermon for you today. Week one of Lent, we talked about recovering the voice of Christ 
in our hearts and in our homes, having the Christian conversation as we make life decisions. Week two, we talked about recovering the voice of mission within our genealogies or within our own stories, remembering where we came from, how we got to today, and how that matters deeply to what God is doing in our life and doing through our life. Last week, we talked about recovering the voice of peacemaking within our communities, and we talked about not getting lodged in our grumbling crankiness, not getting so stuck in what we're complaining about that our complaining turns to grumbling and we can't get out of it, and we start to see and assess the world and ourselves through what is going wrong, not through who Jesus always is. Always ask yourself, when something goes wrong, do I use more energy processing what went wrong than I use thanking Jesus for who he always is? If you find that when something goes wrong in your life, so much more emotion is applied to processing what went wrong than applied to being thankful, you need Lent and you need to fast to make room in your life for Thanksgiving to show up again. It was a fun sermon, and you can listen to it on Salem Podcasts found everywhere. Today, we want to talk about recovering the voice of our purpose when our calling is stalled. There's so much out there about calling and purpose and anointing. There's no way to cover it all. So I just want to be simple. I want this message to be digestible. I want this message, and you won't often hear me say this, I want this message to matter immediately tomorrow. I want to give you something today. I believe the Holy Spirit has something for you today that you can taste and see right now, have it be digested easily, and then take it to work with you tomorrow. Take it into the next thing that goes right. Take it into the next thing that goes wrong. So to be quite simple, calling and purpose are slightly different. Our calling is the acknowledgement from the people around you from your own sense and from the Holy Spirit that God has given you specific gifts for very specific appointments. Using myself as an easy example, my calling, not my purpose, my calling is to do what I'm doing right now. It was affirmed through the prophetic word of God for decades of my life, from the time I was a little bitty boy until I came here for like the second time, and then onward in the community, in the prophetic ministers that came, in my own sense, in the sense of the people around me that God gave me specific gifts for a specific appointment, which started six years ago. Five and a half years ago, but it's doper to say six. Six years ago, 10 years ago, six years ago. Time means nothing anymore since COVID happened. Doesn't make a difference. I always had this calling, but I only had the appointment of it six years ago. When we get our purpose confused with our calling, we will idolize our calling and try to make it happen to save ourselves. So, our calling is something that you sense in you, that the people around you sense in you, that the Spirit 
is talking to people about in you, and it is a specific set of gifts for a very specific circumstance. And it's not always as cut and dry as being in the ministry. You may be called to be an entrepreneur and start your own business. You may be called to be a teacher, not just vocationally trained, not just occupationally trained, but vocationally trained to be a teacher. You may be called to be on the mission field. You may be called to have a nine to five job and to get paid good money so that you can use that wealth to bring privilege to people who don't have it. You may be called to live a life of simple means and maybe even less than you need to be a light that shines in some of the most frustrating darkness around. You never pursue your calling. You pursue your purpose. If you pursue your calling, bad things happen. There are many ministers who are standing behind the pulpit not knowing that our biggest temptation as ministers is to need this for our identity. I'm not saying I don't struggle with it. I'm aware that it's a struggle. Whatever your calling is, and maybe you don't know it, maybe right now as I'm saying these words and I kind of feel it in my spirit, some of you just got anxious like, I'm, I'm older than that dude preaching right now, and I have no idea what my calling is. That's okay, because I'm going to tell you something more important than your calling, your purpose. Your purpose, and my purpose, and Sophia's purpose, and Theodore's purpose, and everybody's purpose in this room and not in this room is all the same. Our purpose is to have a universal redemptive anointing on our life, to go anywhere you go, be anywhere you are, be in whatever circumstance you're in, and bring the redemptive love of Jesus Christ to be felt in that place. That is always your purpose. It will always be your purpose. No one can take it for it from you, and no one can mess it up. People can mess up your calling. Somebody could not hire you. This church could close. Pastor Mark could have stayed here for another 110 years. You can't make your calling happen all the time. You can't force it to happen. God brings you into it or he doesn't. But your purpose is always and forever exactly the same, to be the universal redemptive love of Jesus Christ wherever you are, however you are, tomorrow, today, right now. That is always and forever your purpose. You pursue your purpose and let Jesus take care of your calling. Well, I don't know what my calling is. You know what? Neither do a lot of people. There's a lot of people who are confused about what, what is the groove that God made me for. If you know your purpose, your purpose can be needed, desperately needed and activated in a world where people don't know their calling. You might feel discouraged this morning because you don't know your unique calling, and there are a lot of people who don't know their unique calling, but they need someone in that space of not knowing to be filled with purpose anyway and show how the redemptive love of Jesus can still bear you up and send you to that job you don't like on a mission to do good in the world regardless if you don't know what your calling is. Yo, somebody better clap now, like... Not because this is great, but because we need to be energized by the fact. See, here's the thing. If I, I could easily stand here and we could have altar calls for all these different kinds of callings and everybody would be excited because we all want to know where we're perfectly unique and different. 
There's something in our culture, in our mind, right now in today's world that's a little disappointing when we hear that all of our purpose is the same. We can change the world tomorrow if we all pursued our purpose. Your marriage could be healed like that if you both would pursue your purpose. Your loneliness could all of a sudden be injected with mission and reason and meaning if you would just pursue your purpose. The sickness you have that won't go away can be injected with mission and meaning if you would just pursue your purpose. Those little children that wreak havoc on your patients can be injected with mission when you pursue your purpose. That job you lost, that you were not planning on losing anytime soon, could jack up your identity in two seconds if you're not pursuing your purpose. Your purpose, to say it the most simple, is Jesus Christ. Your purpose is to be the body of Christ in the earth. Your purpose is to shepherd the world around you and lead everyone in whatever circumstance you're in, wherever you're going tomorrow to work, whatever kind of home you're walking into, to shepherd those people to green pastures and still waters and walk with them through the valley of the shadow of death. Every one of us is anointed by God right now without repentance to do those things. But when we don't pursue our purpose, when it's not enough for us, we pursue our calling. And when you pursue your calling, it immediately becomes a golden calf. It becomes something you need, and you've heard me say this before, then people become either assets who are getting you there or liabilities who are keeping you from being there, but they stop being people. They're either opportunities or roadblocks, but they're no longer people. I truly believe Jacqueline and I have a strong vision for this church that is the long game vision of emotional and mental spiritual healing to take place. We feel it in our bones. It's something that we want. And so sometimes in order to get down the road, we just need one simple, one degree of adjustment. And I believe today... What God wants us to know is that pursuing our purpose is mentally and emotionally healthy and letting go of our calling. You have no, listen, I've had to let go of my calling more since I've gotten this job than before I ever did. It is very difficult to not want to control what you have pursued once you finally get it. COVID comes, surgeries come, it ebbs and flows, attendance up, attendance down, money up, money down, people agreeing, people disagreeing, and while you're going through this whirlwind day after day after day, you're saying, I need to hold on to this, I need, and God is like, you need to never hold on to this. Because here's the thing, this is true of me, it's true of you. When you are in your calling, you cannot serve the people around you if you need the calling. You can't serve people that you need to give you your identity because they'll never be free to be themselves. Because once they're not what you want them to be, then your identity's in trouble. And we will always try to save ourselves first, always. If two people are drowning, one of them's not like, there's the lifeguard, you go. 
You're just trying to grab onto something. And some of us are drowning, trying to live in our calling, and we're neglecting what is so simple, the mustard seed that seems so insignificant, the lilies that nobody paid attention to but Jesus, the sparrows that are sold for two copper coins that no teaching ever talked about but Jesus, the one who knows every little detail. He lives in those details. He wants us to pay attention to those details. And one of those details is your purpose and my purpose that nothing can thwart. Not one circumstance, not one job loss, not one financial situation, not one getting cheated on, not one divorce, not one being abused can ever change. And that is you are called to bring the redemptive love of God to bear everywhere you go. Everywhere the foot of you, the sole of your foot treads is promised land for you. So the question is, what can cloud us from seeing that purpose? What I just said is so simple to say, and yet we're going to be tempted to not see it. Our calling is going to always be more shiny and more beautiful and more appealing than our purpose to love people at a cost to ourselves. So what can cloud our vision? What mud can cloud our eyes so that we see what we want to be called to but not what our purpose is? One, our purpose will be clouded if we do not shake at the approach of God. Our purpose will be clouded if we do not shake at the approach of God. Dr. Chris Green said it this way, if you're not afraid of God, you're gonna always be afraid of losing your stuff. If you're afraid of God, you'll let go of your stuff. So if I'm gonna be afraid of something, it's gonna be, I'm gonna be afraid of God. When Samuel showed up, it says that the people of the city came to him what? Trembling. God's presence mattered. God's presence meant something. And you're ready? This isn't necessarily popular, but God's presence made you check yourself. It made you ask yourself when it was showing up, do I want his presence to show up in like this? My life is dressed like this. This is what my life smells like right now. Do I want his presence showing up? Now here's the thing. His presence is going to pop in like relatives you didn't want coming. His presence is just going to call you one day and say, hey, we're out in front. We see you there. Stop hiding. Turn the lights back on and open the door. You ready? And I said this to some people yesterday. When Adam and Eve heard the sound of God coming, what did they do? You know why they hid? Because something was still healthy in their life. Now, should they have been hiding? No, but they didn't know that yet. God mattered to them, and it checked them in such a way that when his presence showed up, they were like, I don't want him to see me like this. Now, God wanted to correct that thought. He wanted them to have a better view of him, but there's something healthy about the person who wants to run and hide as opposed to the person who's still eating the fruit they shouldn't have when God shows up, and they're like, hey, God, you shouldn't be eating that fruit. <clears throat> I know, but it's good, and I'm probably going to have more. Can you stop interrupting our meal and let me finish having this? 
Have you ever met an obstinate person who does not care if the boss shows up anymore? Who doesn't care if they get found out? Who's fine with, I don't care what people think. You know, get nervous when you hear somebody say, I don't care what people think. The issue is not should we care or shouldn't we care. It's how should we care what people think and why should we care what people think. But somebody who doesn't care what people think doesn't understand the cruciform love of Jesus. Because Jesus only ever cares about what we think. He just doesn't care about it the way that we are tempted to care about it. He, you ready? He cares for what we're thinking as opposed to caring about what we're thinking, if that makes any sense. But you have to ask yourself, is Jesus a coach or is he still the Jesus that needs to say, be not afraid when he shows up? If Jesus showed up today, because he does all the time, does he no longer need to say, be not afraid? Because that's a problem. Does he no longer have to walk through locked doors? Are our doors just recklessly open because we don't care who or what comes in to our life, to our, through our eyes, through our ears, through our screens? Like, really, are we more, does more emotional capital leak out of our body because of a 15-second video we saw than the living God who is standing among you every single day of your life, whose eye goes to and fro and knows everything you're about even more than you know? Pastor, are you saying that we should be scared of him? Yes. <laughs> because I know what he'll say next, be not afraid. But he doesn't need to say that if I'm already, here, here's the thing. If I'm not afraid when he shows up, my courage is toxic. If I'm not afraid after he says be not afraid, my courage is holy. But if I wasn't afraid at the beginning, that courage was toxic. That boldness was toxic. It wasn't the good kind. It was the kind that says, I don't really care. I'm fine. He loves me anyway. He loves you so much, he will beat that nonsense out of you. When we don't shake, you ready? The blind man, he didn't worship when he got healed. He worshiped when Jesus said, I'm the Messiah. And I think that little clue tells us that if Jesus would have said, I'm the Messiah before he healed him, the man would have worshiped. In Acts, the dude starts jumping up and down and almost worships Peter and John. When, when Peter goes to the island, they begin worshiping him. This is Zeus. But this man doesn't worship until he hears that it's Jesus, and then he does because he still shakes. Even after being healed, he still shakes. So just ask yourself, if, if the idea of the presence of God, if the idea of coming to church in the morning doesn't give you some sort of sweaty palms and a little bit of anxiety and a little bit like, listen, some of that is good because it shows that you still care and it shows that you know that your life still matters to him and the decisions you make still matter to him and the way we bless or hurt each other still matters to him and the way that we bless or hurt ourselves with what we allow into our body still matters to him. 
So when Jesus makes you a little bit nervous, it's because you know that he still matters and he, that what you do still matters to him. We cannot pursue being people or agents of redemptive love if God doesn't make us a little bit nervous. Now, what's the first thing Samuel said? I come in peace. And what's the first thing Jesus said on Easter Sunday? Peace be with you. He doesn't want you to stay that way. But it's not necessarily bad if we are a little bit freaked out by his presence showing up in all sorts of times. Okay. Maybe not. Okay. All right. I got two more, if that wasn't good enough. Our purpose will become clouded if we see only the limitations of outward appearance. We all are terrible at this one. We see, we, we don't even idolize our own outward appearance anymore. We now see the fake photoshopped outward appearance of each other's lives and really start to think other people's lives are better because of what we're seeing. Really start to see that other people's lives are better because I saw five square inches of their house on this little screen, mess behind them, filters making it look like they got new lighting in the house when they didn't. It's still dark yellow lighting, but they just filtered it on up. It's like, oh my God, they're doing so well. Why aren't we doing so well? Shut it off. Stop getting your emotional truth from something that you don't physically see with you in the room. Let's just start there. Stop doing this. It's not healthy. It never is healthy. And here's the other thing I'll say. Most of what you'll read on there is crap to begin with. To be honest with you. Unless it's like a video clip of our services and then like just watch it for a while, you know, whatever. One brother walked by that was as tall, listen, it, he, was, he looked like Saul. They say he was tall in stature and very handsome. That is precisely one of the reasons why Saul got picked, and it didn't work out very well. Samuel almost picked somebody like that again, and God has to say, stop looking on outward appearance. Some of us are so obsessed with our outward appearance that we start to actually think that we're not valuable to what we're going to go do next. We so obsess over outward appearance, you ready, that we no longer appreciate getting old, which means we no longer appreciate the wisdom that elderly people have. Our culture no longer has elders. And I don't mean elders in the church. I mean elders in the town kind of elders. We don't listen to people who have lived twice as long as we have anymore. Because their life makes us afraid that our life is going to get there too. And we're so obsessed with being so good looking and so vibrant and having so much health that we live healthy, unwise lives. Because we're not letting people who have lived life, who have the battle scars of life, speak into our life. We have devalued age to be something none of us want not a moment in time where we can sit back and say, I'm now ready to be squeezed out so that all of the life experience I have through success and failure could be poured into the next generation. We don't think that way anymore. We don't think that as we age, we're getting deeper. We don't think that as we age, we're getting more valuable to other people. We think we can't keep up anymore. 
And so we start to undervalue the wisdom that God uniquely places in people who have lived long lives. Troubled lives. What what does Jacob say? Few and troubled have been the days of my life. And And he is listed in one of the great trinities of our faith, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. It's because his life was troubled that he's so valuable to us. It's because his life had so many things go right and wrong that he's so valuable to us. It's because his body couldn't keep up with him many, many times that he is so valuable to us. It's because Abraham, as it says in Romans 4, when he considered his body as good, of, as, good as dead, it didn't make him waver in his faith. When he saw how broken and getting old and how his body wouldn't work, and he still pushed through anyway, he becomes valuable to us in that older age. Not less valuable, he becomes our value. Who sinned, this man or his parents, that he was born blind? Superficial. We want to know who sinned. You're wrong. The question is wrong. Stop asking Jesus those questions. Who sinned? I mean, Jesus could have turned around and said, all right, so if somebody sinned, they go blind, your eyes are shut, your eyes are shut, your eyes are shut, your eyes are shut, your eyes are shut because you thought the question, didn't even ask it, your eyes are shut. Everybody's eyes would have been shut. The Pharisees, he healed your eyes? Yeah, I've been blind since birth. You can see us right now? Yes. Okay, uh, did he make mud? Yes. He broke the Sabbath. Like, that's what you're focusing on? It's almost like us having people over for life and ministry, and we're concerned with the shoes we're going to put on. It's almost like that. It's things like that. When Peter was walking on the water, and it was windy because they were in a storm, it says when he saw the waves, that's your problem? You're walking on water in a storm, Peter. That's your problem. It doesn't matter what these little things are that you're seeing. Don't, the wave isn't what's going to kill you. The ego that puts you out here is what's going to kill you. Focus on that. There's so much more in you than there is on the outside of you. And there's so much more on the inside of every person you will meet than what they're bringing you on the outside. We used to bear with each other. We used to walk with each other through thick and thin. We used to, we used to be able to tolerate each other. Now when somebody is cranky, we hate them. Ugh. They were terrible today. And God is like, you noticed that they were cranky? Yeah, they were the worst. You noticed that they were cranky? Yeah, they bothered me all day. You noticed that they were cranky, which means you noticed that something was wrong and you didn't want to bring a little redemptive patience into their life to try to help? Oh. Whoops. Whoopsie daisies. Our purpose is so under attack by not caring about the presence of God, and by being so taken by what we see immediately. You can put the quote up from Tertullian right now. We're going to skip real quick. The, the quote from Tertullian. You think 
You ready? You think as you see, and you see only what your eyes let you see. You think as you see. The way you think is rooted in what you're looking at, but what you're looking at is only what your limited, broken little eyes are letting you see. Some people need to go blind to be able to see. We said this yesterday. Adam and Eve, when they sinned, their eyes were open, not closed, and their open eyes blinded them. Blinded them from the goodness of each other, and all they did was start nitpicking at each other. Their eyes were open. It would have been healing for them for God to shut their eyes. Eyes wide shut, Jeff, to my left. Thank you. Yes. Some of you are saying, I used to be able to see, and now I can't see anything. It's because God is blessing you because your vision was clouding you. And you will see better blind needing to hear than you were when you were seeing. Finally, the last point, our purpose will become clouded if we see our current work as level and not land. This is dangerous. We have a tendency to see the little bit that we're faithful with now as the way to get to more. We've all been told that David was able to become king because he was first faithful as a shepherd. Time would fail me to tell you how dangerous this is. Let's think about one of David's worst moments. He sees Bathsheba. He decides, that's my property. I can have whatever I want. I'm a king. Sleeps with her, gets her pregnant, kills her husband. Nathan needs to confront David about this. Nathan says, David, a man had a lamb, and the kids loved the lamb. And he tells this whole story about how a friend came along, and the man gave the lamb that the kids loved, slaughtered it. And Nathaniel says to David, what would you do to a dad who did that to his kids? And David goes, oh, I'd slaughter him. And Nathan says, you're the man. Not you the man. <laughs> you're that guy. You're that guy. Now, funny that Nathan used the story of a lamb to talk about how David treated Uriah's lamb, Bathsheba. Nathan is using the analogy of a lamb. Why? Because David wasn't chosen to be king because he was a faithful shepherd and now he could move on from shepherding to become king. David was picked to be king precisely because he was a shepherd and God wanted a shepherd who stays a shepherd to become king. The issue with David is that he thought shepherd was a level and king is a higher level. No, 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 no. David's worst problems was because he stopped being a shepherd after he became a king. Jesus is the king of, and he's also the good. The son of David redeems David by staying a shepherd even after he becomes king. 
because the little tiny stuff that you're involved in that you want to say, I can't wait, if I just got to be faithful here so that I could have something better, it turns into dumb theology like, you know, being faithful as a single will get you a date, and then being faithful dating will get you married. That is such rubbish. I got so many words. Seeing things like, oh, Pastor Bill, if you're faithful at being a youth pastor, then you'll finally get to be. No, 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 no. There is almost no better glory than being able to teach our kids. It's not a springboard. Whatever you're doing right now that you want to say, if I can just be faithful in this little, God will give me much. He's given you that little to show you the kind of person he always wants you to be when more comes. He never wanted David to stop being a shepherd. He picked him because none of the other brothers were shepherds. He never wanted David to stop being a shepherd. Think to a time in your life where you were involved, where you were responsible over something that no one else really noticed or saw, and it brought you just a little bit of joy. It was simple. Just think back to a time when your life was manageable. Think way back. <laughs> and just think about one little thing. Maybe it was a tiny little garden outside. Maybe it was a little like lawn mowing business. I don't know. But think back to a time where you just had something, a pet, something that was just simple. Maybe you were younger and it brought you joy. Who you were in that moment is who God wants you to be in the largest, most grand things he ever calls you to. Because your purpose is more important than your calling. Because calling without purpose is idolatry. Purpose without calling is life. You can have, you can never find out what your calling ever was. And if you have purpose, it will be fine. Because there are so many people who don't know what their calling is. And if you have purpose not knowing what your calling is, you can bring mission to people who don't know what their calling is. And save people from depression, possibly suicide. You ready? Last thing. This is what Jesus says. This man did not sin, nor did his parents sin, that he should be born blind, but that the works of God may be displayed in him. Notice what Jesus didn't say. He didn't say that the works of God could be displayed in his healing. <sighs> in him, not his healing, which means the works of God were displayed in that man every day he was blind, not just after he got healed. When mud was all over his face, it didn't thwart the purpose of God. We're talking about him because he was blind, not because he was healed. If he was never blind, he never would have been healed, and we wouldn't be talking about him. His blind life makes us still talk about him. His blind life is why the disciples are asking who sinned and asking dumb questions that Jesus is healing. His life drew all the successful people's lives into it. While he was still blind, lives were already changing. Jesus taught the disciples about the questions not to ask before he healed the man. While the man was still blind, the disciples learned something. The works of God were displayed in him while he was blind. In him, not his healing. In him. There isn't a situation that you're in ever, anywhere, blind, seeing, sick, healthy, that the works of God are not being displayed in you right now. Being displayed in you and through you 
right now. That's why Ephesians says our job is to expose the works of darkness. How? Not by verbally accusing people and not by withdrawing, just being. And we hate that because we want to do more. We want to be unique. We want to be the one. We want to be powerful. If you watch an NFL football game, every time somebody scores one touchdown, they're like, I'm him. You score, you're down 35 to 7. You scored one garbage touchdown. You're him. Stop. Win the Super Bowl. Catch a ball on your head against the 18-0 Patriots. Then you can start talking about who you are. Just to throw out a random example that means nothing to me whatsoever. Let's stand to our feet this morning. There's nothing impressive in this dish whatsoever. For over a thousand years, nobody questioned whether or not this actually becomes the body and blood of Jesus. Then all of a sudden people started to question it and start to poke holes in it. Paul says in 1 Corinthians 11, examine yourself before you come eat this meal. Because if you're not repenting, and you receive the body of God, you could be receiving judgment over your life. Can I just tell you something? If this was a metaphor, you couldn't eat and drink judgment over your life over a metaphor. There's something so real happening in this dish that we actually need to brace ourselves to come to the table because it's not a metaphor. It's real. Where has John gone? Has he disappeared again? Okay, just keep going. No, just kidding. <laughs> I'm, I miss him. He was a good guy. It's not impressive. Because if it was impressive, if it was impressive, I can't even think straight. You're impressive, John. <laughs> if this dish was impressive like John, we would have no issues believing that it could actually become the body of Jesus. But we don't want boring things to become perfect things. We want to know that only the spectacular becomes more spectacular because we look on outer appearance. This meal is the ultimate lesson in realizing that something perfect happens in something boring, not impressive, and insignificant. Is that condescending? It's not. Because all of us feel that over our life at some point. It's why we try so hard to not be normal. It's why we don't like ordinary time because we want to say things like, you know, ordinary time on earth is extraordinary. Stop. St don't say that. It's just ordinary. 
Jesus was a man despised and rejected, a man who we did not esteem, without form or appearance, that we should boast in him. Savior of the world who blended in. When the, when the soldiers came into Garden of Gethsemane to arrest him, what did they have to say? Which one of you is Jesus? He wasn't dressed better. He wasn't more shiny or perfect looking. They couldn't tell the difference between Peter and Jesus. Which one of you is Jesus? He's so normal. And you know how much rest we could find if we would just calm down about our bank accounts, our home, our clothes, our physical appearance. If we would just be good stewards of those things because we love Jesus and not because we're trying to save ourselves. Take care of those things. Take care of yourself. But not because you're more valuable if you do, because you're already so valuable. Treat as valuable what God has already called valuable. Your house is valuable. Your apartment is valuable. Your studio is valuable. Your bank account with a lot of zeros is valuable. Your bank account with only zeros is valuable. Lord Jesus, on the night when you were betrayed, you looked down at this meal and you said, this is my body which is broken for you. And you knew we would misunderstand this meal and you didn't try to save it. You just said, keep coming to the table. Keep receiving my body. Keep receiving my blood. Keep repenting every time you do and slowly you'll get it. You'll get that amazing things can happen in the ordinary. Father God, I pray as we come to the table that we would repent of idolizing our calling and not being content with the simple purpose to be your love to the next person we meet. I pray that as we receive this meal today, we would be strengthened to see our purpose, that it wouldn't be clouded by our cavalier attitude, it wouldn't be clouded by physical appearance, and it wouldn't be clouded by thinking that life is a whole bunch of grades that we need to graduate from to get to the good stuff. But that we would receive this meal and realize we have all the good stuff today. We are more than we could have ever asked or thought today. And there's nothing you can't do through our life today. And I pray that that would begin to matter. These are the gifts of God for the people of God. As you come forward, Elder George will be here and Elder Ron will be here. Come forward and worship with us. Thanks for listening to the Salem Tabernacle podcast. For more information about us, including gathering times and our location, Check us out online at salemtabernacle.com.